Hey folks, it's Matt here. Really excited to introduce our second in our ongoing series, America's New Generation of Farmers. This one was produced by Andrea Bachman. We were lucky enough to meet her through the Good Food Jobs website. It's a really lovely, intimate interview with a farmer that I fell in love with, and I think you will too. America's new generation of farmers, Wicked Good Farm, starting now. This is Cornucopia. folks. I'm Andrea Bachman. I moved from Michigan to Montana, from southeast Michigan to northwest Montana in June of 2016. And one of my priorities was making sure I had a place to put my hands in the ground. And in Michigan, I was working with a farm called Green Things Farm, who you'll hear from in a later episode. And I contacted a couple farms out here in northwest Montana, one of them being Wicked Good Farm. And Brooke Bohannon got back to me right away and I spent my last summer volunteering on her farm and this past summer working a few days with her. And I really am inspired by farmers, especially folks around my age who have decided to take the plunge into the earth and let go of whatever career path perhaps their family expected them to be on or that they were on in order to grow food for their community. In Northwest Montana, the growing season is even shorter than in Michigan. Now, I grew up in a climate where there is lots of snow in the winter, and there are a lot of cold days, and it's a humid cold. It's a bitter cold. And out here, it's a bit drier, but there are only 117 growing days outside of a hoop house in this area of the state. So that puts everyone who's deciding to grow food in a little bit of a different situation than most folks, especially than those in California, where last the first episode about the young farmers came from that Ashley shared with you. So I wanted to share this story of Wicked Good Farm and let you know a little bit more about what goes on, what's involved with farmers who decide to make a living growing food and sharing with their community. The growing season is short here, about 117 days like I mentioned, and meat freezers line the rural highways. But a few hoop houses line a city street in a neighborhood where the train can keep you up at night if you're not used to it. And that's where the Wicked Good Farm story began. The farm's second location is about a 15-minute drive from town, where I placed wool sock over microphone to quell the wind. And without further ado... My interview with Brooke Bohannon, and I have the Wicked Good Farm here in Whitefish, Montana. It's a small acreage farm. We only have about three quarters of an acre in production, and we're looking to increase to an acre to an acre and a half. Great. And what? Tell me about where you farm. Like, where's the acre and a half? Is it on your sure. property or so elsewhere? So we uh, we actually were partially an urban farm. We live right in town in Whitefish, and the backyard is where we started, and that's about an eighth of an acre in production. We actually have a high tunnel in there, and then 
about five miles away, we lease the, the other acre, acre and a quarter. Um, and we're a small vegetable farm, kind of diversified vegetable farm. Yeah, and we're actually standing in the middle of that field right now. That's so right. what do we see around us? <laughs> yeah. What are we doing right now? Uh, right now, we're harvesting some broccoli and some broccoli florets. Uh, and yeah, we're looking at the beautiful um, Columbia Range. Yeah, the Columbia Mountain Range. Mm-hmm. So, Brooke, why did you become a farmer, and what drew you to the land rather than another profession? Well, I grew up in rural Vermont, and my parents and both of my grandparents all had large gardens or small farms, and I have a degree in ecology and environmental tech, so I've always been drawn to more of the natural world, and I've always had gardening and food preservation as part of my life, and I decided... um, quite a few years ago that it would be kind of fun to just grow a little bit more and dabble in being a market gardener and start selling to restaurants and it's just sort of kept evolving up from that to what it is today. But you didn't go right from having that exposure to food and the land and your interest into farming. There are a lot of steps in between. Oh, what yeah. were some of those steps? Um, let's see. Well, I was a waitress forever um, because I actually ran sled dogs. So for about 15 years, my husband and I had a kennel of sled dogs. And so in the, between that, we, I would just wait tables because it was easy. And then I also worked uh, for the Forest Service for a while, and then I, most recently I worked for Montana State University, and that was in agriculture, but that was in conventional small grain agriculture. Right, and you recently just shifted out of that position to work full-time for yourself, is that correct? I did, as of April 1st, yes, I became 100% my own farmer. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and so, Brooke, um, what made it financially possible for you to farm? Um, well... Fortunately, my husband is still gainfully employed, but um, I think partially by, by building up small while I was still employed allowed us to get some of the infrastructure, some of the tools and things. So I had like a full-time job and farmed after work and on the weekends, and then I went half-time. So it allowed me some of that. Um, I guess we dipped into our savings a little bit, but always my backyard market garden was Mm self-sustaining. So whatever, I wasn't trying to make a living off of it, so whatever it generated for income, it just went back into building that. So I did that for about four years, so that was helpful. Other things that have made it financially um, accessible was um, I was the recipient of an NRCS high tunnel grant. Mm -hmm. So that paid for about half of our high tunnel and then this year, through the Montana Department of Agriculture, we got a small grant um, for small, diversified farms, specialty crop farmers, which paid for our new fence. Great. And that's out here at the, the bigger plot of land. That's right. That yeah, yeah. So we had to build a fence this year. So that was really nice to because fencing is rather expensive. And then... Land is expensive here in Montana, so being able to lease this land and the gentleman who actually owns the land, you know, has been very generous. He has like a tractor that I can, you know, kind of rent from him so I don't have to buy it. Mm -hmm. And then, so that's been, those little things have added up tremendously. Great. And and when you say high tunnel, you mean passive solar hoop house. So it's another way that somebody may yes, think of that. Right. Yep. Okay. Yeah, non-heated, no electricity, no mechanized fence, just the sides roll up. Right. And are there other ways that you support your crops growing other than using a hoop house? 
Um, we for season extension kind of things, we just use row covers out in the field um, here at the the piece of ground that we rent here or lease. Um, there, I do have access to a nice growing greenhouse, like with heat and you know ventilation, thermostatically controlled ventilation. So that's really nice for starter plants. Um, but out in the field right now, most of my crops are just planted in the field with row covers early season. And what's a row cover? Oh, row cover is like a lightweight piece of fabric. Um, it's called Rime as well, or Agrabon. Um, and they come in different weights, and you just put it over your crop, and it protects them. It provides warmth, like a few degrees, like maybe three degrees. Uh, but really, it makes a cozy environment, keeps it nice and humid in there. It protects the plants from frost early season. And then newly transplanted plants, it protects them from wind. And we get hail here in northwestern Montana. Even in August sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> or June. So uh, as you actually look around, I have all my row covers pinned in the walkways. And that's in case we get a thunderstorm, I can come and pull them back over the crops. It was suddenly so windy that Brooke had a hard time securing those row covers that she just described. I can't put my row covers on because it's so windy. So this is like perfect. Okay, great. So let's go for it again. What sacrifices, financial or otherwise, have you had to make to sustain your own farm business? Sure. Well, the biggest sacrifice I made was definitely financial. Um, Leaving my position with the university... You know, that was a salaried position that offer, also offered uh, retirement and health and life insurance benefits for both my husband and I. So not only did I let go of my salary and those benefits, but I also now had to acquire those bills and seek private health insurance, life insurance. And as a small business, I mean, farming is a small business, um, you know, there's other insurances associated like liability for injury of you being here on the property as well as like product liability in case somebody purchases any of my goods and thinks that they get sick from them right and what does that cost annually for you the product liability is well our it's actually not very much um our insurance agent was able to redefine our insurance as a farm and ranch insurance policy, which kind of cracks me up because, you know, our house is like kind of residential and then this is like a small farm. <laughs> but under farm and ranch policies, they have those liabilities built in. So on, so it's kind of got bundled or reworked into our homeowner's insurance. And so it was only about another $150 a year. Okay. So it was very, but still, it's like something you have to figure out. Yeah. And I took this farm law class this year down in Missoula, Montana, and um, by Farm Commons. And she was saying that, you know, we're sort of charting new territories and that we're square pegs trying to get pushed through a round hole. Mm. You know, like the commodity crops have all of these things accessible to them and we don't. And then like, you know, maybe they have multi-million dollar policies, but that wouldn't be something we could ever afford. So it's trying to figure out how we can get the coverage that we need. So the new territory is establishing insurance plans that match the size of your farm and what you're doing. Yeah, all kinds of plans. But yeah, insurance is just one of those. Uh Yeah. I've known farmers who have qualified for and supplemented the food they grow using SNAP benefits or food stamps. Is this something you've had to face yourself? The financial strain to buy enough food to supplement what you're growing? Sure. Uh... I have never looked into that. Um, And obviously in the summertime, I have a plethora of food. And it really seems like an oxymoron that a farmer would have to apply for food stamps or SNAP. Um, I think that 
clearly points to a much bigger problem in our food systems. So as a farmer, if you make less than $110,000 in a year, the minimum wage that you're required to pay your employees is $4 an hour. And how do you feel about that? Well, I think that's kind of funny. Um, I think that that's clearly a non-livable wage. Um, It's not the kind of farmer I aspire to be. What kind of farmer do you aspire to be? (laughs) Um, One day, I hope I'm in a position to provide a few individuals with a good paying position and be socially responsible. Um, And until I can get there, though, I hope to start to develop a good intern program with educational components. Can you say a little bit more about both the educational components of the internship and also what it might mean to be, was it a sustainable, what was the word you used? Oh, socially responsible. A socially responsible farmer. Um, Well, I think that for internship, to have an intern, um, you know, you want them to be learning. And so I think it's important to encourage that and have it be an educational model where perhaps they would assume responsibility over one or two crops, um, educating themselves and the group on the crop, uh, and as well as taking care of it throughout the season, not just book work, but practical as well, book a couple of practical. And then being socially responsible, you know, nowadays that would include like health insurance and things like that, but I think you could take it beyond that by understanding that we all have lives to live. Um, you know, say someone has a child, be able to accommodate them in their childcare or their needs to be with their children at certain times of the day, um, or allowing them time to attend um, classes or things that are important to them, maybe even providing them um, a stipend to attend some kind of class, whether it be farm-based or for their well-being, like meditation or yoga or something like that. Yeah, so really taking into account the person beyond just their farming experience. Yeah, yes, looking at them as a whole person, not just as a piece of my farm. Great, thank you. You know, I work hard, I grow a lot of food, and I guess maybe I could qualify for food stamps or SNAP, but I've never, the thoughts never crossed my mind. And again, my husband is uh, still gainfully employed as a carpenter, but I mean, definitely our income was cut in half. Why choose to grow food on small scale, on this small scale, if it's such a hard business to make a profit? Well, um, I'm hoping to make a profit. <laughs> it might be a small one. Um, but I am following like uh, JM Fortier, the market gardener sort of model. So I think there's room for market, uh, for, to make a profit, I mean. Um, but even scaling up, you know, there's the larger you get, the more inputs you have. So I don't think it... I mean, I just know there's a tipping point. Then you start having more employees, you have more equipment, so all of that still costs. So I think that your profit margins get capped. Mm-hmm. You know, like in this type of farming, if you could acquire like a 40% profit margin, then that is pretty good. And I think that, you know, I don't think if I had 20 acres, that would go to 60% profit margin. Okay. I think that you're always going to run on small profits. So the size doesn't really matter in some ways. In some ways. Obviously, if you know you have more acreage and you have more of each crop, then yes, you have that much more to bring to market, whether it be a farmer's market, wholesale, um, however you move your product. But um, efficiency, mm-hmm. which does come sometimes with equipment. You know, the more efficient you are and the more um, 
less time it takes to do certain tasks, then yes, you're going to increase your profits there. Yeah. And any piece of equipment that you dream of having on your farm? And I know I didn't ask you this question before, but I'm curious, is there anything that would help make your process more efficient? Uh, Yes, there is. There's two things as a small farmer I'm looking at. Uh, One is a flame weeder that's five burners. Um, Right now I just have a single flame weeder, you know, like a traditional like ditch burner. Um, And using flame weeding in sterile seed bed preparation has really reduced the weeds a lot this year in this, this piece of ground. And um, so getting a nice five burner. And then I'm really interested in the paper pot transplanter because I transplant out almost everything because it's, again, it gets it ahead of the weeds and helps the plants be more established. So instead of having to pull all those plugs out of the tray, even though I have a plug popper this year, which I really like, um, if I could just have that paper pot transplanter and you plant them in there and you just walk up and down the rows mm-hmm. and it plants it. I think that, like today, you know, I had a couple of volunteers here and we planted out 400-foot beds, three of lettuce and one of beets. And collectively, I was popping plugs mostly while they were transplanting, but I bet, you know, collectively that was like nine hours. Wow. And so if I could replace that, maybe eight hours, but still, if I could replace that and it, I could do it by myself and, you know, maybe it only takes like 20 minutes a bed. Wow. And so what would that cost? Um, for you to buy that equipment? I think they are, the flame weeder is around $500, so that's, you know, pretty attainable. And then the paper pot transplanter, I think, is between around $1,500, but the individual trays are $5 each, and you only get, you plant them out, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But when you really start to pencil it out, it doesn't take long to recoup that in your labor and then sales. Yeah. And there'll probably be less transplant shock to the plants. Oh, tell me about that. What's transplant shock? When you uh, just when I pull the plugs out of the tray, uh, you know they get a little disturbed. The roots get disturbed. They get a little bit roughly handled, as gentle as you try to be. Um, and so when you put them out, they actually, you know, they kind of suffer. You can see it. They look a little sad for a few days until they get reestablished. And so it'd be nice to minimize that because sometimes it seems like it might set them back a week or two. And then you're like, well, was it really worth it to start them inside and transplant them out if I just st- slowed them down for like a week? Right. And the paper would stay with them as they go into the ground. Yeah, yeah. So I think you would end up with healthier transplants. Awesome. Thank you. Mm-hmm. All right. So, Brooke, are there ways that you're working to make your farming enterprise more sustainable? And how can those who support you, local foodies and advocates, support you in, in that sustainability effort? Well, first I just want to talk about sustainability because that's a pretty big question. Um, You know, I think number one, to be sustainable, your farming operation has to be financially sustainable, meaning, you know, you're generating enough revenue that the farm doesn't like dip into your savings account and then you're making a profit. So for me to get the farm more sustainable just that way is techniques and time and a little bit more experience. Um, and then some tools and implements and then bringing on either some uh, interns, volunteers, or part-time employees to help with that piece. Um, and then, you know, I think of sustainability as far as building soil, like being a sustainable farmer from the soil nutrients component and water use efficiency and all your inputs being sustainable. And so that, you know, if we try to use drip irrigation. Um, we use local composted manure and then we also purchase in manure and then um, that's been composted 
and um so when I first asked you this question before we started recording you chuckled and said I'm not sure it is sustainable yet (laughs) can you tell me a little bit more about where you want to go from here if that's important to you yeah well I again when the first thing that comes to mind for sustainability is that it's financially sustainable and so that's why I'm like I'm not sure I'm there yet but I think it will get there one thing actually that I'm really trying to do in my farm is so I have a few CSAs and I do market. Uh, I go to farmers markets, but really I'm trying to focus more on wholesale. So for me, a big sustainability piece is identifying the crops that I can have for the duration of the summer consistently. That restaurants know that they can rely on, like you know, greens, kales, beets, things like that. That the farmers, I mean, that the restaurants want consistently. And that will help me become more sustainable is developing those markets and be able to provide them with what they need for the duration of the season. Great. And you actually, through the colder seasons, you coordinate an effort of several farmers who have similar similar farms, maybe a little larger than yours, who are growing for the local community so that folks like me and, and restaurants can buy local year-round. Can you talk a little bit, bit about that? Yeah, so actually I kind of do that year-round. Um, the other hat that I wear is I have a produce distribution business in addition to a farm business. And so that, um, in the wintertime, we open it up to the general public for storage crops like apples, potatoes, onions, carrots, winter squash, garlic, things like that. Um, And then I mill flour, I have a stone mill. And so for those foodies in the community who want to continue to support local farms um, and local agriculture throughout the traditional non-farming season, we've opened that up to them. And so every week I put out an email with a list and then they can order on the website and, and then they just come and pick it up. And we're actually brainstorming, working with some of the other farmers of doing like a winter CSA and what that might look like. And then, uh, yeah, and then I distribute produce from about eight farms in the valley to various restaurants around the valley. And that's been really exciting work to work with. What's exciting about it? Well, just, you know, helping farmers, other farmers, find markets that, you know, and the, and the restaurants are super excited because they don't have the time to phone all the farmers in the valley to find out what they have and what the price point is. So we've come together as a group on set price points that we all feel are comfortable. And so there's no competition amongst the farmers. And I just put the list out with a farm name and then the restaurants, if they prefer your farm over my farm for carrots, then they can order it. Like, it doesn't matter to me what farm they're ordering it from, that we're just getting local food into those restaurants. And then the consumers go there and want the local food and demand it and so it keeps the cycle going oh chew on broccoli while you talk that's all good (laughs) so so brooke what would what do you wish the general public not those folks that are advocating maybe for local food at the restaurants but who are showing up there um what do you wish that they knew about farming and how you farm and how food generally gets to their plate farming is a lifestyle choice um i mean you're sort of married to it I'm glad I'm not a dairy farmer, that's for sure, because that's 365 days a year. At least I get some downtime in the winter. Um, but farming is a lifestyle. It's uh, hard work, but it's a labor of love. I think people who farm are passionate about what they're doing. I mean, it's, there's nothing more gratifying than putting a little seed in the soil or in you know a pot in the greenhouse and watching it emerge and grow, and then, like, then you get this amazing whatever it is, broccoli or peas, um, tomatoes. It's just a really wonderful cycle to be part of and to be able to observe and facilitate. 
Um, but I think it's important that the general public realize that there's about 2% of the population in the United States farms, and that's kind of scary um, that it's that few people who are still passionate and find that feel that they could possibly make some sort of a living at farming because those are the people who are feeding the rest of the population. And that knowledge needs to be passed on um, on how to care for plants, how to care for the earth, um, you know, nutrient needs, everything. You know, beneficial insects. There's so much uh, knowledge, and I don't have it all, but I'm always learning um, that there's a big disconnect. You know, people may just get some carrots or some kale and cook it, but never think about, oh, somebody actually had to take this seed, put it in the ground, nurture it along, monitor it, harvest it, you know, rinse it, clean it somehow. Then it gets packaged, and usually it gets on some sort of delivery vehicle and transported probably a 1,000 miles to, to the store, then you get it. But not only that, that somebody had to let that crop go to seed, and somebody who's very specialized, and that is not me, knows how to collect the seeds and keep them so that we continue to have the seeds to keep having food. Right, because the crops that you grow are annuals. Yes, yep, they're all annual crops, pretty much. Yeah, you have rhubarb. Rhubarb, right, because <laughs> rhubarb comes up every year, every and, year and gets bigger every yeah, year, which yeah. is great, right? But yeah. not, not most of the food yeah. that we eat, we have to initiate every time. Yeah, like I have to buy seeds every year, new seeds for all of my crops. And are there local farmers or um, Northwest Montana farmers or seed collectives that you can buy local seed from? Or where's your seed coming from? Yeah, um, Because we need large volume of seed, there's a lot of um, organic and I guess non-organic seed companies out there easily accessible. So our local seed companies have smaller quantities. Um, it's more for the market gardeners. So I usually have to source mine you know, on the internet from larger seed suppliers. Um, and who do you use for that? Um, I like to use uh, Fedco out of Maine quite a bit. I use them and Johnny Seeds. Yeah. Great. And and you were talking earlier that there were only 2% of Americans, was it, who farm? So. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounded like you wanted to say, we need more farmers. At least I, I was yeah. wondering if that was percolating under the surface yeah. for you. Absolutely. We definitely need more farmers, for sure. Um, and, you know... So this valley here, the Flathead Valley of Montana, is I think we're supposed to breach a, a population of 100,000 this summer. And not including the orchard or the just produce farmers, not including the orchardists or the small grain farmers, you know, there's probably only one for every, like, 8,000. So it seems like 8,000 people. And how many people do you serve or could you serve oh, year-round? Yeah, um, I think... Once I got up there, you could probably, like, once I'm sustainable and all efficient, probably about 100 families, maybe. Okay. So you're about 7,900 families short of uh-huh. supporting your 8,000-person <laughs> yeah. contingent. Yeah, yeah. Okay. so I think there's definitely room for uh, more farmers. Yeah. And and that said, are you, you, so you're an advocate for more farms, it sounds like. What yeah. about an activist for local farming and local food? I'm an activist, but I definitely support it. I mean, between all the marketing that I'm trying to do with the restaurants and the wholesale piece, um, I guess that could be considered activism, you know, because a lot of time there's a big educational piece. You know, if I cold call a chef, I have no idea if they're using 
local produce or if they, you know, sometimes they don't want I'm like, well, we use the such and such farm and such and such farm. And they're like, are those farms here in the Flathead Valley? And so I'm surprised that they don't even know. So there's a lot of education on like who, who the farmers are and what they have to offer and where they're located right here. So, yeah. Do you think there's an education piece other than what you already shared about what it's like to farm and um, what the process is like? Is there an education piece for the general public about why buy local? Or why more farmers need... Or if there were more farmers here, local farmers here, how that could really support the community? Yeah, well, you know, after the big Great Recession, I think that a lot of communities should be looking at ways as a whole to be more self-sustainable. And here, again, in northwest Montana, we're sort of at the end of the line for trucking. You know, so a lot of our food comes from Seattle, Spokane, which isn't that far, five hours away. Um, but, you know, it's, but it's, if it's coming from Seattle, it probably came from California. And so just to be more resilient as a community, supporting your local farmers and, you know, making way and accepting the prices, too. Like, we're not overcharging you, um, that's for sure. You know, we're just eking by. Yeah. And you're right, I could have chose to be like a... I don't know, some other sort of profession that's right. nine to five and weekends off right. <laughs> with a secure paycheck. So when your farm com- becomes sustainable financially, what kind of salary are you looking at? Oh, you know, I only aspire to make like maybe thirty dollars to $40,000 a year. That That's fine. Mm-hmm. I know other people probably think that's like poverty, but I don't have an extravagant life with a small home two cars you know it's pretty pretty baseline I don't have a lot of expenses I guess yeah and you still are able to find ways to have some fun right I yeah. know that you like to hang out <laughs> on the river you guys took a trip to Chile this year yeah yeah we did we went we, we tried it we do try to go on a vacation once a year that was that one was a big one they're not always quite that extravagant or far away um, but yes we it's it's hard this time of the year to find the balance um, because our days are long. We have, what, like 16 hours of daylight, and there's a lot of work to be done, and this is our season. And so, but we're getting to a point in the season where things are sustainable, mm-hmm. kind of, time-wise, and so we try to take, or I try to take Sundays off. My husband, we set boundaries, and he does not farm on Sundays because he works all week and helps me farm on the weekends and in, or nights. You said there's 16 hours of daylight now. We just passed the solstice, so we are slowly shrinking back down to shorter days, but it's going to be a while. So are you working all 16 hours? Um, well, you know, my average day is, you know, I sort of like to wake up around 5.30 and have some breakfast or whatever and try to be start working by 7, 7.30. But sometimes that work is um, emailing, invoicing, like there's like the whole business side of it. Um, and then getting out to harvest and processing it. You know, so I have two days a week where I get over here to this bigger parcel. I try to get here around 7, 7.30 and get my harvest done and then I truck it actually back to the home place and that's where I process it all. And that's where we have our walk-in cooler and like our hydro cooling station. Um, so I'm not sure that that's a very efficient process, but that's what we have to work with. And so anyway, so I do that and then I get all my, pro- my harvest done processed by about 2 in the afternoon and then I go back out to field work. And depending on what's happening... Um, things always seem to take longer. You know, something breaks. You got to run to the hardware store. But I usually end up working somewhere to about 8 or 9 o'clock in the night. Um, 
And then you have your market day, which that, you know, takes you until 8.30 at night by the time you get home and get unpacked. So usually you can say 7-ish to like 8 or 9 is a normal work day. With you know, you break for lunch for like a half hour or something. Mm-hmm. And what in, what's involved in the processing that you bring the vegetables back home to do? Oh, sure. Um, we have to, we call it what, hydro-cooling is the, I think, the legal technical term. Basically, like all of our greens and our kales... Everything, you submerge it in water and it pulls the field heat from the sun out of it and it sort of, at the same time, gets rid of uh, debris, dirt, and things like that, insects. And then um, I have a greens machine. It's a large salad spinner, electric. I love that thing. That's new. That's increasing efficiency. What did you use before? Uh, just a hand crank, like, restaurant-sized salad spinner, which held, like, maybe a pound or two, and this thing can hold, I don't know, like, 10 pounds or so. So it's quite nice. Um, and I don't have to hand crank it with my arm. Um, and then, like, root crops, we just call it field cleaning. We just sort of hose them off, get the dirt, the brunt of the dirt off. And then I like to pick any, like, you know, yellowy leaves, things that aren't very pretty. I like to make make the produce look pretty. So what are the worries that keep you up at night? Um, well, sometimes it's financial, like wondering... Am I really going to be able to, you know, make this work? Um, And then when, in the spring and the fall, the worry of frost. But one way to alleviate that worry so I can sleep all night and not wake up every hour and check the thermometer and see what the outside temperature is, um, is to put these row covers on. So that if I just put my row covers on, then I sleep. Mm. Hail, but that happens usually during the day and that's just is what it is. When was the last time you lost sleep because you weren't sure if your row covers were on or if it was going to frost at night? These are just some of the experiences that farmers have today and have had for centuries. There's always been a growing edge and new ways of doing things, but what seems to be consistent is the weather, right? The inconsistency of the weather. And I I invite you the next time that you buy food, whether it's from your farmer, from a grocery store, from a farmer's market or picking up from a CSA or even when you go out to dinner to take a moment to actually think about the pathway of the food and where it may have come from and whose hands it might have touched and and what that person may have experienced to bring you this food. You can probably hear the love and excitement and energy in Brooke's voice and the farmers of Spade and Plow and you will from Green Things Farm as well that this is an act of love and care, curiosity and gratitude. So Here's to being grateful and having the experience of knowing that the food that you buy from local folks is grown and prepared with love. Thanks again to Andrea Bachman. Andrea's behind the podcast Fearless Self Love with Andrea Catherine. In addition, you can visit Wicked Good Farm in Whitefish, Montana. Their website is wickedgoodfarm.com. This is Cornucopia. 